0: MailChimp presents. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang. And this is Going Through It. This week, one of my elders, Margaret Cho. I'm so glad that you could do this podcast with me because I chose the theme of talking about elders Mm -hmm. for my interviews. And I can't have this podcast without talking to you, one of my... One of my elders. <laughs> I mean, elder makes it sound like you're like so old, but you're like just a few years older than me. No, I'm and, like... pretty
1: old. I'm 52. <laughs> that's that's pretty old. I think that's like really old. But I mean, it's a good old. I like it. So <laughs> I actually don't mind elder. I think it's kind of impressive, you know, especially in the entertainment industry, especially as an Asian American woman. It's really empowering to be The elder. And so I I embrace it. I love it.
0: You know, in my first life, I was a burnt-out and depressed labor organizer who was working way too hard to change the world through politics. And one of the things that got me through that time was streaming Margaret Cho's stand-up comedy specials. I remember sitting on my couch watching her on my laptop just nonstop cracking up so hard. And that was the first time I watched her not just to be entertained, but for inspiration. It was soothing to imagine a life away from the stress of my political work. And maybe I could live differently, share my stories, and connect with people the way Margaret does. Maybe I should try comedy. Margaret seemed shameless on stage. She did hilarious impressions of her mom and dad, making fun of all the little things that my immigrant friends and I would feel ashamed of. She was provocative, and made me feel a little uncomfortable with how honest she was sometimes. And she was doing this for millions to see. There was nobody else in popular media like Margaret Cho. She was like a unicorn to me, and her comedy felt like magic. Like, there's this one joke from her 2002 stand-up special, Notorious CHO, that still cracks me up every time I hear it.
1: I always thought my mother was conservative, but she had a really interesting attitude towards gays.
0: Because, mommy, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, everybody
1: little bit gay. <laughs> You know, if uh, you have a a friend and you like
0: your friend so much, you don't know what to do.
1: (laughs) This kind of gay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who did that? No one did that. But Margaret did. When Margaret picked Joan Rivers as her elder for our conversation, it was a full-circle moment for me. In 2013, I was only three years into performing stand-up comedy. And somehow, I was asked to be a part of a Showtime documentary called Why We Laugh Funny Women that was produced by Joan Rivers. Yeah, the take-no-prisoners comedy legend herself, Joan Rivers! I felt unworthy! I was talking about being a comedian side by side with veterans like Joan, Kathy Griffin, and Whoopi Goldberg. Early on in my comedy career, Joan Rivers validated my existence as a comedian. And it was around that same time when I first met Margaret. And that was the beginning of her support of my comedy. Margaret is someone who has inspired me both from afar and up close. And this conversation with her about her mentor made me feel like I'm a part of a powerful lineage of funny women. So it's only right that we end the season here.
1: Joan Rivers was incredibly influential for me in comedy. I remember when I was a little kid, I would watch Saturday Night Live, and (laughs) I would see her performing. And this is when Saturday Night Live used to have comedians actually perform sets, So there's relatively few comedians that did that. You would see um, Andy Kaufman did, Steve Martin, and Joan Rivers. She would host and actually do a set. Not like a set monologue in the beginning that was written for her. She would actually do her own material and then also perform throughout the show. And um, so I saw her doing her set on Saturday Night Live, and I was so incredibly impressed by her confidence. She seemed like she had friends in the audience because they all knew what she was talking about before she even did the joke. She would say things like her famous catchphrase, can we talk?
0: And you know what? Can we talk about this? Can we talk for a second? Let me tell you why, okay?
1: And it was so Mm -hmm. evocative of we've talked before, and we're going to talk again. And that really appealed to me as a really lonely kid who was trying to figure <laughs> out where I belonged in the world, especially because you never saw Asian people on television or in movies or anything. You kind of felt really invisible. But for some reason, I really identified with Joan Rivers, even though she was an older lady on television, I really felt like she would understand me or that I wanted to live a life like hers.
0: And so now that was your first impression of Joan. Can you tell me about the first time you met Joan?
1: The first time I met Joan Rivers was in New York City, where I was performing a very successful show called I'm the One That I Want. And it was all about my experiences doing television. So Joan Rivers had come to a few different performances, which was quite a big deal, She also was asking to present me with an award that the show had won. So I did not actually meet Joan until the award ceremony, where we sat at the same table, uh, and what I noticed about Joan Rivers was how compact she was. For such a big personality, she was such a tiny little lady, and... She didn't eat a thing. She had like a plastic, it wasn't Tic Tacs, but it was like mints of some kind, but they were like off brand. They looked kind of like a weird little white pearls and they smelled like Tiger Balm. So it was like a Ooh. salon paws, maybe. <laughs> salon paws or some kind of like medicated. It was like a uh, Vicks Vapor. Rub. It was like a pe- Vicks pellet. brand pellet. It was like a container of them. That she spilled out onto her dinner plate in front of her and slowly ate one after another of these (laughs) Tiger bomb, strange pellets. I don't know what they were, but she only ate that. And we really laughed about everything. And she invited me because she had launched a jewelry line on QVC, which is a home shopping network she had launched her own Joan Rivers jewelry line which was all replicas of her own real jewelry oh which she uh-huh. had quite a lot of and but she would have fakes made replicas made which she would wear wow. out so she would keep all of her real jewelry in her safe at home and she would wear her fake jewelry out so she would sell her fake jewelry on QVC yeah and she offered me her entire line of jewelry Wow. That she was selling on QVC. But I told her, I don't wear jewelry, which I actually don't. And that was, she was so offended. Yeah. By the fact that I did not wear jewelry that she turned her back to me and wouldn't speak to me again for about two years. Oh and, my that, God. <laughs> and then, after the, that sort of period was up, we became we close again. She was just so appalled that a woman wouldn't wear jewelry.
0: How did your relationship develop into a friendship or a mentorship?
1: We just connected in terms of comedy, in terms of making fun of different things, different people, and I was able to continually reach out to Joan for events, for uh, TV shows I was doing that I would want her to guest star on. So every time I would reach out to Joan for anything, it was always with great excitement that she would respond and come do it, which was such a big deal for me Mm. to be able to call on this legend, this icon, who would support my shows. And anytime we happened to be in the same city, I could go to her show, not at the show, mind you, (laughs) because whenever I would go see her perform, she would never allow me to come backstage. She was very nervous about people she knew in the audience. So she would make plans with you to hang out later but she didn't want to see it at the venue. She actually did have a quite pronounced case of stage fright.
0: Yeah. And it seems like she really needed to protect her space before she went on stage, huh?
1: Yes. I remember being at the Kennedy Center Honors, the Mark Twain Awards, which was posthumously honoring George Carlin. Yeah. And it was all the guys. Like It was all like Jon Stewart and, and Bill Maher and Gary Shandling was alive and she didn't want to come out of her dressing room. Oh. She just stayed in her dressing room and then allowed me in, but nobody else was allowed in. Wow. And so we just sat in there and gossiped, but she didn't want to see all the guys. Like she wanted to like sit there and be calm and work on her jokes that she had written for the event and work on what she was going to say and do and really didn't want to see any of the guys. Like I think that there was something about The guys, that she just didn't want them to drain her energy. And also, like, when you go to events like that, so much of it is about a one-upsmanship. Especially with the guys, because they're all like, we want to be the funniest one. I mean, that's with comics hanging out together. It's like a natural thing. It's like everybody's always riffing, which I don't like. (laughs) I just get tired of it. Like, I don't care. Yeah. It's a lot of, you know, it's posturing that I'm not involved with. I always felt like I needed to recede into the background, which I think that's what Joan felt too.
0: Is there a particularly vivid moment in your relationship with Joan that really sticks out?
1: Well, I think it's just amalgamation of different kinds of moments where it really stood out to me how supportive she was. Like, I remember I had a terrible performance for a benefit that she had done the year before, and they hated her, and they booked me the next year, and they hated me. So we were, like, just texting back and forth about, oh, you fucking hate them. Oh, I hate them more. Like You know, comics, like, we just – I hate bombing. But the best thing is when you have another comedian who knows the feeling. So – even though we are there separate years, we both really could commiserate on like, you know, just that awfulness of sometimes you go to these corporate benefit, whatever, yes. and they're just not there for comedy exactly. Right. And then they book comedians like myself or Joan Rivers, who are not necessarily the most gala ready performers. <laughs> You know, what do you want? Like, what do you want from us? We're just, like, doing what we do, and you hired us. But I think what sometimes these places, they want to buy some danger. So they'll buy into an artist that's, like, dangerous, but then they don't like it. And it's, like, for some reason, like, they know not to get a man. They don't Uh want male danger. They want female danger. But for some reason, they're really offended by female danger. That's kind of, like, what we would connect on over and over throughout the years. And I remember... Once she came to uh, do my show in Atlanta, and I was dating a guy there, and she's like, oh, handsome. Mm. So you got a job? And I was like, yeah, he has a job. It's like, all right. Her focus was focusing me on my career. And like, don't pay attention to these guys. They don't matter. These guys Mm. don't matter. These dumb things don't matter. Bombing doesn't matter. What matters is you and your career and your comedy and how funny you are and... She would always really, really go out of her way to be very vocal about what she thought was funny, why she thought it was funny, what was great about it. And I think that that was really amazing to be so viscerally appreciated by somebody who was just so important. She gave you like really specific feedback, it sounds like. Yes. And that's what I appreciate. And that's why I try to do that. For people now. And I also try to support their work and get in there when I can, you know. And so she was always physically there. And that to me was very important. I think she had a lot of energy to give for comedians and comedy that she appreciated because a lot of the world of show business she didn't necessarily appreciate. So it was really important to get that love from her.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, I feel like she taught you a lot just by being herself, right? And I'm wondering, like, were there any direct lessons that really stuck with you?
1: The most important one is they're going to want you more the older you get. The older you are, the better you'll be. So that things will improve with time. That was her constant message. They're going to want you more the older you get. Because in comedy, we... uh, ripen with age we mature into better comedians especially as women because our perceived value is lesser as we get older but with women in comedy we just get better with age and that's given me so much confidence and it's true I really have grown as an artist I have really improved as a comedian and as an actor as I get older and so I always have her in my mind saying that they're always going to want you. And I'm really, I'm glad I have that in my heart. And I want to impress that upon other comedians who I uh, adore, like you. Aww.
0: Thanks, Margaret. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, is there any particular moment where that advice really helped you?
1: I would say it helps me every day because in the entertainment industry, You just feel old. Like I just joined TikTok two weeks ago. Boy, I'm not just old. I'm like BC, like before Cho, like very ancient, old, old, old. Like everybody is so young on that platform. It's like really crazy. So I think like every time I go to do something new, I'm like, okay, well, they're going to want you when you're older. They're always going to want you really kind of comes in handy in all of these spaces that I go into and in my daily life. I'm always saying that in some capacity to myself. I think that we do get better as we get older. As comedians, our skills to get to the joke faster, it's really refined. I think that a lot of times when you're starting in comedy, it takes a long time to get to the punchline. Not necessarily literally, but metaphorically, you're like casting around to see who you are as a comedian. We try on a lot of different identities. Mm -hmm. And the older we get, we understand, oh, this is it. Like for me, my philosophy around comedy is that we're all crystallized into one eternal joke. And it's a question. And mine is, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here. So every joke that I do kind of relates to that. I think Asian American comedians also have that in common. We all have this, I don't belong here, But I'm here anyway, so let's get into it. That combined with the generation of comedians before us, it was mostly observational comedy, which was the question why Jerry Seinfeld would always go into every joke. And you could look at the sort of like philosophy behind it is why, why, why is this happening? Yeah. And so I think that's a really powerful way to look at comedy and a way to kind of get to the heart of who we are.
0: You kind of blew my mind a little bit because I don't think I've thought about it that way in that the eternal question that a lot Mm -hmm. of our generation deals with, especially if you're immigrant or more of an outsider. Yeah. Is.
1: I'm not supposed to be here, but I am. No matter where you are. (laughs) We're not supposed to be here. And that could sort of be in any capacity. Yeah. But it's like trying to figure out or metabolize what that means in joke form. And it's infinite.
0: I know for me that like, when I hear you talk about the way, you know, Joan has mentored you and really been there to support you, I nod a lot because you've done that for me and for Mm -hmm. so many of us. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I do feel like you've been passing on that legacy, you know? I mean, it's your own legacy, but I see it in how you describe Joan.
1: Well, thank you. I'm trying to, you know, bring that forward because I think that it's important. I think that it's really valuable and it makes me feel really Excited because I haven't been able to see Asian American women in comedy until recently. You know, it's only been in the last 10 years at the most that I've seen such great Asian American women in comedy.
0: Yeah. I know for me, a moment that I will never forget was when you did a set at our comedy festival. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, for a long time, I produced a mostly Asian-American female stand-up comedy tour. And that turned into an Asian-American comedy festival called the Comedy Comedy Fest. And when we started the touring, we joked. We're like, oh, my God, it would be amazing if we could get Margaret Cho to like do our show someday. Fast forward four years later, the festival happens. You come and do the show and it was an all-female Asian-American lineup. Mm -hmm. And you go on and you're just so complimentary to everyone. And everyone gave you a standing ovation at the end of your set. And then you go into this little speech where you basically say, I feel so special, something really special is happening here because this is my first time that I've ever been on a stand-up comedy show with other Asian women.
1: I have spent 30 years in this business so lonely and so I'm so, like, I'm going to cry about it. But I'm so grateful that you guys do comedy and that maybe you might have seen me. That, that makes me feel like if you saw me and you thought, I'm going to do that, that makes me feel like I did something really good with my life. Thank <laughs> you.
0: After how many decades being in comedy, mm-hmm. for you to have that experience with us for the first time was just it blew our minds. I mean, we all got chills. Everyone started crying.
1: It's like, we have to do that for ourselves Yeah, because we don't have that. Like, I think that white cis male comics have long had these like boys clubs where they could really congratulate themselves and really kind of, um, they're like their own doulas. You know, they bring (laughs) themselves into this nurturing environment and birth each other. And it's really like beautiful (laughs) we never had that. We just had to sort of like go out and do stuff on our own and try to figure out what was right. And so finally we've built this community together out of like bamboo stuck together with rice, old rice. I mean, we've done it. It's really good. It's really good.
0: I'm just laughing at the idea of Joe Rogan being a doula.
1: <laughs> just like, just you know, giving birth. Embracing
0: Norm MacDonald in a water tank. I know.
1: In a water tank full full of ivermectin. Just a big, like, very warm, inviting pool of misinformation. It's really, it's inspiring.
0: Oh, I love it. So moving forward, how do you continue to honor Joan's legacy?
1: Just by getting older, enjoying it, expressing my joy in Performance, Still getting yeah. out there and doing shows and having a great time. I still don't want to wear jewelry, though. But Joan gave me permission to grow old and have fun doing it.
0: This really simplifies it, doesn't it? To embrace getting older, having fun, and sharing my comedy. With Margaret's support, we have built this community together, and it was all I wanted. When I decided to pursue comedy, I knew I needed a supportive community to keep me going, because doing this work can still get so lonely. Margaret stayed the only one for so long. She paved the way so we could forge even more paths, which is why I created my own Asian American comedy tours and festivals. It was why I reached out to Margaret Cho early on and said, I'd love to have you on our Asian American comedy show, even though you don't, really know who I am, and it's why she said yes. Since I started comedy, Margaret has performed at my shows, put me in her podcasts, cast me in a music video. She's retweeted and recommended me and so many other Asian American comedians for stage time and opportunities. A few years ago, I was backstage after a big LA show on Margaret's tour. She grabbed my face and said, you are my children. And we both started to cry. It sounds dramatic, Because it was. (laughs) But when you pursue ambitious dreams like succeeding in comedy, or you're simply going through a challenging time, it means the world to have someone you respect, offer you their wisdom, and show you that you are in the right place. It's one thing to call someone an inspiration. Anyone can do that from afar. But it's how that person spends their time, care, and energy to change the course of our lives for the better. That's what makes them an elder, and I am so grateful to be able to call Margaret one of mine. Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are J. Ann Berry, Jenna Weiss and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarinesh Ashagre. This season is produced by the All Star team of Sophia Steiner Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford Angwin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection, or very close to it, by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Mokija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for the season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Katokiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lu Gong, Kwan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud ass partner, Corey Higgs for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.